Our hope is in the name of the Lord, who may have it in the earth. Okay, welcome to the Schola Christi. Uh, this is a group that was established in particular for the adults who come to the oratory as a way of continuing our education in the faith. And uh, since its inception, I've tried to keep the focus of it, uh, in particular on the Eucharist, since this is the center of our life as Catholic Christians. And what we've been looking at here over the past months, when I, I haven't been sick and canceled the group, uh, is uh, a book by Romano Guardini who was, that was written in the late 40s. It was actually written before the Second Vatican Council, uh, and he retired in the late 60s, sometime after the Council, and one would even say that a lot of his thought preceded some of the changes uh, that came about in the liturgy. But if we had actually read what he wrote, in particular, in particular this book called Meditations on the Mass, I think we would be in a much better uh, state than we are now in terms of our understanding of the liturgy, how it is that we would want to enter into it. Uh, so far, we've looked at the uh, importance of stillness. This is where, if you remember, he began the book, that uh, silence is an essential element for us as Christian men and women. We have to still the mind and the heart. The primary language through which God speaks to us is silence. That uh, uh, God can only speak a word that is equal to himself when it's not limited by our intellect or our words, our speech. And so in some ways we have to create a stillness not only in our environment but also within our minds and our hearts in order to be able to listen to God's word more fully. Uh, we began to touch upon this a little bit the last time uh, and when we were talking about simply our own words as human beings. Often we chatter, we talk a lot, uh, everything in our culture fosters this kind of speaking without reflection. We're often fragmented in our minds, the way that we think about things. And so what Guardini discussed last time was the importance of establishing a kind of stillness within our, ourselves uh, so that our words arise from the deeper part of our being and uh, arise out of contemplation, of prayer, of deep reflection. Tonight's uh, reflection is going to focus on how it is that we listen to the Word of God as it's proclaimed to us in the liturgy. And again, how important it is that there is a silence that uh, precedes this, but also uh, moves along with this, that we need to prepare ourselves uh, to hear God's word, but in the very act of listening, we also have to have a kind of stillness within our, our hearts as well as in, within the, in the setting. And, uh, and so this is where we're going to pick up this evening. Uh, we try to treat this group as a kind of group Lexio Divina, so it's a meditative reading. It's only a few pages, but I'll read a paragraph or so, stop, and maybe offer a few thoughts, and then open it up for discussion, and then we'll move, move on with the group. Uh, and so don't feel hesitant to put up your hand, ask a question, or offer a comment uh, during the course of the night. Uh, we always like to start with uh, a hymn, uh, much like St. Philip did in his gatherings. Uh, back at the inception of the oratory, and so when we stand, I think it's sound a little better when we're standing up and singing. But the opening hymn is Firmly I Believe, a uh, hymn written by Blessed Newman. 
and it's meant to be sung so somewhat gently, but don't be so soft that we can't hear you, okay? <laughs> Firmly I believe and truly God is three and God is one, and I next acknowledge duly manhood taken by the Son, and I trust and hope most fully in that manhood crucified. And each thought and deed unruly due to death as he has died. Simply to his grace and holy light and life and strength belong. And I love so italicized print in the handout tonight is just a little bit of my reflection. Uh, it's just the first couple paragraphs, and then the rest of it will be Romano Gordini's thought. Again, this is taken from his Meditations Before Mass, Stillness and the Word. In a few pages, Guardini takes us ever deeper into the mystery of the interplay of silence, speech, and hearing. It's not uncommon, Guardini notes, to observe people at Mass with the eyes fixed on the Missal during the proclamation of the readings. This may be done with the sincerest desire not to miss a word, yet in providing this opportunity to read along, as it were, many parishes undermine the spiritual act of listening attentively to the sacred word in its spoken form. Uh, it doesn't happen too often here at the Oratory. We don't provide uh, Missals for people to follow along. Uh, not, I can't say it's for, for these reasons, but uh, one of the Guardini's points is that there's something about the act of, of listening itself, of not simply reading the words, following the words along in the text, that is important for us. That In a sense, the word is made flesh again for us when it is proclaimed and then we listen, that faith comes through hearing. And so if we are focused, if we are fixed upon a text in a missal, 
there's something fundamental that we're going to be, be missing. That uh, in the study of psychoanalysis, one of the things that they will say is that, uh, you, you know how therapists will take notes sometimes when uh, they're listening to a client or a patient. And uh, in psychoanalysis, they often say that it's, it's best not to take notes until afterwards. Like Sigmund Freud would stay up real late and write out all of his case notes, but never wrote during the sessions with people. And there was a reason for that, that a sustained listening to what the other person was saying was essential. Because once you focus your attention upon one thing and begin thinking about that, then you're no longer listening to the whole of what the individual is saying. And so you want to have a kind of reverie where there is an openness to everything that is being proclaimed because there are often truths that are being spoken, realities that are being talked about by the individual that if we were just to focus on one thing, we might miss the, actually the bigger and the more important thing that the other person is communicating to us. It may seem insignificant to us if we were simply taking notes on what we thought was important. But if we had the sustained listening, we might pick up something that would seem wholly insignificant but could open up uh, our sense of understanding of what the person is going through. And not to compare that to, to the mass, but I think in some ways Guardini is, is telling us something similar, that we want to open ourselves to God as much as we possibly can there's a time, certainly, for reading, and so he's not being dismissive of it, and certainly we would even want to read the, the readings of, of the Mass before we attend. But when we hear the word proclaimed, we want to have that kind of prayerful, sustained reverie, opening of ourselves to God so that we would be hearing the word that he desires us to hear. And for every person, I think, within the congregation, that might be slightly different depending on the individual, what they're going through, what their relationship is with God, what they might be struggling with. And uh, so it might not even be exactly what the priest preaches that day. I've had people tell me that, you know, thank you for saying this or that, and I didn't really say that in my homily. They heard something that they, they needed to hear. And I think there's something true also in the proclamation of the word as well, that there can be something that comes through to an individual if they're being attentive to God that might only be made aware to them much, much later, weeks, months, years down the line, or later that night. But uh, so I think we want to try to get away from that practice, not, again, that it's done so much here, but you can often see people becoming lost. Uh, maybe now it's an iPhone instead of a missile but lost in their electronic gadgets or with their head in a book rather than listening attentively to what's being proclaimed. And that's why it's so important also to have someone who reads well to proclaim, proclaim the scriptures, to, that it would be slow, meditative, uh, that uh, it wouldn't be rushed through, it would be loud enough for everyone to hear. The same would be true for the preaching as well. Uh, the divine word is more than what is typeset on the page, but something that can only reach the depths of a person's heart through hearing. There is a vitality in the spoken word that elicits the deepest emotions and produces faith. 
the partial attention that comes through reading not only prevents a deeper comprehension, but also makes what is to be communicated incomplete. There is, states Corvini, a spiritual, corporal nature of God's word that is akin to the sacraments. The word was made flesh, and the same mystery continues in the living word of the liturgical proclamation. So some you know, very important thoughts there, a spiritual corporal nature to God's word. We believe that the word became flesh, took our flesh upon himself. And so when the word is proclaimed, made present to us as it's proclaimed in the mass, that we want to be as attentive to that as possible and use all of our senses, especially our hearing. And again, not only you know, why, why proclaim it at all, he says in the text we'll get to. Why not, if we're going to read it out of the book at the same time, why not just have people sit in the pew and read from the missal? There's something about hearing that allows the word to penetrate to a deeper level. It, it often can stir comprehension or stir, stir certain emotions that would be important in order to enliven a person's faith. You can see how just reading it in, in a book might not do that. Uh, we have a similar experience here on Wednesday night. We have a group uh, on St. Isaac the Syrian's ascetical homilies, and uh, we read through the text verbatim, sort of what we would do here this evening, uh, in order that we might read it ahead of time. We hear it proclaimed uh, in the group. We discuss what is, is read at the group, and then we can reflect upon it again because we podcast it and record it. It's at philcalia.podbean.com. If you want to listen to that, <laughs> still, gosh, rough room. <laughs> okay, where was I? Such hearing requires silence, not just in the church, but in the mind and heart. We must seek to overcome the spiritual, intellectual, emotional noise within us to hear the word of God, not simply through the filter of our minds, but as God desires us to hear it. So there can be impediments that we have on an intellectual, emotional, and spiritual level that we have to seek to overcome in order that we might hear the word of God fully. And so this is why the rest of our spiritual life is so important and why fostering a kind of stillness and silence is so important in our life. And next week, we'll, next month, we'll be looking at composure, how it is that we prepare the mind and the heart to enter into the liturgy. If we are living the spiritual life, if we are praying daily, if we are being attentive to God, if we spend the night before Mass uh, silencing the heart, praying, reading through the scriptures, then when it comes to the word being proclaimed at the Mass, we're going to be far more open to the action of God's grace in our life and to, again, hearing the word that he desires us to hear. We'll be able to overcome those impediments that we have. Sometimes we'll have a, a kind of resistance to hearing the truth of the scriptures. Uh, you know, we've heard them so many times before that they aren't even jarring to us anymore. When Jesus spoke them, it would have probably made the crowds shudder. You know, the, his teaching on the Eucharist, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Uh, unless you uh, uh, or if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. Unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, and even your own life. There are 
scripture passages that if we were really listening to them would shake us to our, our foundation and make us consider our, our life as a whole and how we are really living in accord with the gospel. But when we when they become something that we are so familiar with, then they, they no longer have that impact upon us. And if we develop that resistance to the challenge of the scriptures, because we've been so formed by the culture, we, we can block out the, the truth altogether. And if our consciences have been dulled, we might hear nothing of what is proclaimed in the word or what is proclaimed from the pulpit. We must seek the kind of stillness that is the fruit of purity of heart and that comes through the ascetical life. Uh, I, just, I didn't throw this just in as, as filler, that the way that we live our lives, the, the, the way that we pray, the way that we fast, the way that we uh, seek to allow our passions to be transformed in order, order towards God, the more that we study scriptures, all these things are going to lead to a kind of purity of heart that then allows us to hear the word, word of God as we're meant to. And so overcoming those spiritual impediments, growing in our faith, uh, deepening that faith through our, our prayer, our, these things are essential for us in our experience of the liturgy and the proclamation of the word. Any comments before we go into Guardini's text? Nothing is as yet? Okay. Would be following you with this? That's a good point, but uh, <laughs> feel free not to. <laughs> Silence and speech are independent, interdependent, I'm sorry, and together form that nameless unit which support, supports our spiritual life. But there's another element essential here, hearing. And so silence and speech are two fundamental elements of who we are as human beings. It's only out of silence that we can really speak with any truth of who we are as human beings. Uh, otherwise, often our, our thoughts are fragmented or partial, incomplete. We have an incomplete understanding of who we are or of certain truths. And as these are tied together, so hearing is tied to silence and, and speech. So silence, speech, and hearing, he wants us to link together. Let us imagine, he says for a moment, a dialogue mass, epistle and gospel. Indeed, a substantial part of the mass is read aloud in English. What do those believers who love the liturgy and wish to participate in it as fully as possible do? They take their missiles in their hand and read along with the reader. They mean well, they are eager not to miss a word. But how odd the whole situation is. There stands the reader, continuing the service which the deacon once performed. Solemnly, he reads the sacred words, and the believers he is addressing read with him. Can this be a genuine form of the spiritual act? Obviously not. Something has been destroyed. Solemn reading requires listening, not simultaneous reading. Otherwise, why read aloud at all? Our bookish upbringing is to blame for this unnaturalness, 
Most deplorably, it encourages people to read when they should listen. As a result, the fairy tale has died and poetry has lost its power. For its resonant, wise, fervent, and festive language is meant to be heard, not read. In Holy Mass, moreover, it is a question not only of beautiful and solemn words, but of the divine word. So I'm glad he uses these images of the fairy tale and poetry that both are were at one point proclaimed aloud to a group of people who are listening to a story being told. People weren't reading along with the storyteller. And same thing with poetry. The, the very form, the very nature of it is, again, is meant to be something that evokes certain thoughts, feelings, that you are able to uh, understand what the author captures with his words. And so only to read it, not to hear it read and listen to it, is to miss something. And uh, to miss something very important that we are meant to comprehend. In fact, Corradini says it destroys the act of listening itself that is so important, especially when it comes to the divine word. So if it's so important with poetry, and if it's so important with something like fairy tales and stories, that in order to, to, un, to, to capture and understand the beauty of what is being proclaimed, how much more so would that be with the proclamation of, of, of the word of God? Okay. Any thoughts so far? Yes? I agree, and I think we really have moved, moved away from that, especially in education. Now professors will put PowerPoint slides up, so they're not, uh, not only, they're not even just reading, you know, their books to themselves, but also reading the notes that the professor is using. And so they really aren't listening so much to him. I, I, and I noticed that in college, too. You're writing so fast to the point that your hand aches trying to capture everything that the professor is saying that, that you could walk out of a lecture and not really remember anything that was talked about because you were so focused upon the act of taking notes itself. And the further I got along in education, the less notes I took. You know, maybe I jot down a few things, but more time was spent listening to what the professor was saying. So all my notes from seminary are terrible, <laughs> not, not worth much. But uh, I sort of doubt the value of note-taking anyways. It's funny, when I go back to things, you think so differently 20 years ago. And when you pull that stuff out, you think, I wouldn't even use that anyways. So why do we keep them and let them gather dust? It's better to reread the books over again you know, after you have experience in your life. And uh, 
So I think what is being spoken of here is, is very, very important on multiple levels, not only with the liturgy, but I think uh, with, uh, how about the divine office, the breviary, that uh, we will often do the same thing, that uh, the breviary was made uh, for those who didn't live the monastic life, but were still bound to say the, the divine office to pray the Psalms, and so it was put in a, an abbreviated form. And uh, gradually there's a movement away of saying, of praying the psalms together antiphonally, where a priest would, uh, on his own, read through the divine office. And many writers will say that it's best, actually, when you're saying the divine office, to pray the words out loud that it, it slows the pace down and makes you listen to it more clearly. You hear yourself speaking them. And so it, it allows the words of the Psalms, to again, to do the same thing that would take place at Mass, to evoke a response or to, to lead to a deeper comprehension. It's more likely that we are going to carry the words of the Psalms with us throughout the day if we've heard them spoken out loud than if we quickly go read through the, the breviary at the various hours throughout the day that we are, are called to prayer. Uh, it's inevitably, a priest will speed up in the saying of the breviary, too, because you can read, you could speed read through the breviary, and you're not meant to pray. It's meant to be prayed, not to be speed read. And uh, so across the board, I think there's something important for us here to be thinking about. Any other comments before we... Move on. Uh, yeah, I think it's yeah. interesting that in the synagogue and then later in the church, the readings were often chanted. Mm -hmm. So they weren't even just read. Right. They were sung. Mm -hmm. They were sung. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the, that, and that kind of emphasizes the faculty of hearing. Right. Um, but in an even more powerful way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, dialogue mass, but I guess when he wrote this, the dialogue mass was really almost an experimental right. thing. It was just being introduced right. in a very sort of tentative way in some places in Europe right. as part of the liturgical movement. Um, but it seems like when it was in Latin, they chanted the readings, but then when it got pushed over to English, right. the chanting of it kind of very so, diminished or eliminated altogether. Right. We probably lose something. Not yeah. Yeah. It's funny to go back to Guardini, who precedes that whole movement, because he was writing in Germany where a lot of that, all of this, these changes in the liturgy began, or a lot of them anyways, and then to go back to him now and read his works and think, he's describing exactly what we've lost, what was tossed out in the whole, whole process, that he precedes the shift, and he's anticipating it here, which is obvious, but he's capturing something, what we need to go back and regain for ourselves. Because the liturgy has been stripped. You know, we've minimalized things, thinking that we're somehow making it simpler or more accessible to, to people. When, in, in fact, we're, we've stripped it down so much that we've hobbled ourselves that it, it makes it much more difficult for the word to have an impact upon us when it's proclaimed. You know, when somebody gets up there and mumbles the reading, 
that certainly has to be different than somebody chanting the gospel in a beautiful way. We, we were recently in a church in Arkansas Catholic Church, and they had implemented this, which is now, I guess, gaining a popularity of sort of dual screens hanging in the sanctuary. And so the words of hymns and the words of the readings and even the text of the prayers, the creed, the gloria, everything was projected on the screen. And it was very odd because everybody in the church was completely focused on the screen. And then when there weren't words on the screen, the actual figure of the priest was projected as if it were like a jumbotron in right. the stage. Right. And we attended the liturgy with some family members that were not Catholic, mm -hmm. and I was trying to describe to them why that was like a gross violation of Catholic <laughs> liturgical ethos. Right. And they didn't understand what I was talking yeah. about. Now, this would have been a really good thing to have yeah. in hand. <laughs> because he really gets at that. You know, yeah. Why that's so jacked up? You know, why that really right. undermines? Yeah. Well, it's placing something between ourselves and God. You know, we're placing the text on the page, these written letters, between ourselves and the hearing of the word proclaimed or, or sung. And so we are placing a limit upon ourselves in that, that regard. In the same way, I think, uh, even with prayer, we'll, we'll do this. When we go into the chapel, we've talked about this before, sometimes we'll go up for adoration, which the whole, you know, monstrance means to show. So we're there to gaze upon the Eucharistic face of Christ, and a lot of times the first thing that we will do is yank out a book and open it up and turn our, our head down. And so we pl we're placing something between ourselves and this unmediated vision of the Eucharistic face of Christ. It doesn't make any sense, but it's uh, an habitual thing for us to do. We're, again, depriving ourselves of this kind of open encounter with, with God uh, that prevents us from listening on this deeper level. Any other thoughts? Where did I leave off? Can somebody help me? Perhaps? Yes. Perhaps at this point, someone may protest. But these are mere aesthetic details, which matter very little. The main thing is that the believers receive and understand the word of God, whether by reading or hearing, is of no import. As a matter of fact, this question is vital. In silent reading, that frail and powerful reality called word is incomplete. It's an interesting thought that in silent reading, that frail and powerful reality called word is incomplete. So if, if we are reading, again, getting back to the, the breviary that the priest will pray and other faithful will read, pray throughout the day, if, if we only silently read it, we're really not uh, receiving it completely. It's the word that God wants us to hear completely. We're limiting it to what we see with our eyes, and we're closing off one of our Sent the more important sense that allows the word to penetrate uh, more deeply within us. He goes on to write, It remains unfinished, entangled in print, 
corporal. Vital parts are still lacking. The hurrying eye brings fleeting image to the imagination. The intelligence gains but a hazy comprehension, and the result is of small worth. What has been lost belongs to the essence of the liturgical event. No longer does the sacred word unfold in its full spiritual corporal reality and soar through space to the listener to be heard and received into his life. Would it be a loss if men ceased to convey their most fervent thoughts in living speech and instead communicated with each other only in writing? <laughs> wow. I communicate most often throughout the day with people via text and messenger, even when a person's like two offices down. <laughs> Hello there, how are you doing? <laughs> but isn't that wonderful that there's there's something he's telling us here that that is most fervent about our communication with each other and God's communication with us that is is being lost if we're limited limiting it to words on a page or on now on the computer. Even Pope Francis recently, I think, came out and told people, hey, put away your phones during Mass. There's something far more important going on at the altar than taking a picture of it. You know, again, not uh, his idea there is not to put something that is between oneself and God in, in, into that moment. They're placing an electronic gadget between themselves and God rather than focusing their whole being on what's taking place at the altar. When I first became Catholic, that was what was most striking to me, was that everybody at the Mass was focused on the altar and what the priest was saying, the prayers that were being said. And there was an intensity about that that I had never experienced before as a Christian, because my experience always was cut off at the proclamation of the Word and the and the sermon, that was that was it. But uh, then when all of a sudden I encountered Mass, everybody became focused in the most intent way, together as a group, on what was taking place at the altar. And Guardini's telling us that we can lose that powerful experience even earlier in, in the proclamation of the Word itself. Definitely, he says, all the bodily vitality of the ringing word would vanish. In the realm of faith, also, the loss would be shattering. After all, Christ himself spoke of hearing. He never said, he who has eyes to read, read. <laughs> it's probably the best line in the... <laughs> This is no attempt to devaluate the written word, which in its place is good and necessary. However, it must not be crowd out what is better, more necessary and beautiful, hearing from which, as St. Paul tells us, springs faith. So, you know, we're destroying something very important when we, when we aren't engaging in the liturgy in the way the tradition has held out. Us. These things did not develop by accident, but with a clear understanding of, of what was taking what is taking place during the liturgy. But more important, more, more importantly, I think it, it, it arose out of our understanding of the incarnation, 
the Word became flesh. And so our encounter with God is to involve the, the whole person. And when we minimalize things, especially with the liturgy, you know, he's saying uh, the realm of faith also, also the loss would be, sh- and the realm of faith also the loss would be shattering. That when we strip the liturgy, when we minimalize things, uh, and when our pro- proclamation is, you know, lacks a kind of fervency or beautiful, then we are impoverishing the faithful. And you can see what takes place. I mean, there's more of an urgency to get out of Mass than there is there to linger long. And uh, it's as brief as the readings are and as brief as sometimes as the homilies are, if a person goes over 15, 15 minutes, you're in big, big trouble. You know, if you go to 20 minutes, you know, for, forget they'll be calling the bishop. faith can of course be kindled from the written text but the gospel the glad tidings gains its full power only when it is heard members of a reading age we have forgotten this and so thoroughly that it is difficult for us to realize what we have lost the whole word is not the printed but the spoken in which alone truth stands free Only words formed by the human voice have the delicacy and power necessary to stir the depths of emotion, the seat of the spirit, the full sensitiveness of the conscience. Like the sacrament, God's words, God's word is spiritual corporeal. So, you know, there's something about the spoken word that becomes far more concrete and real to the one who is hearing it, as opposed to reading it on the page. There's something of the person that is also in the proclamation of it as well. And if it is a man of faith, and it, the, the word that is, is spoken is going to communicate that faith to the listeners. And so priests don't have to be you know, great orators. They have, though, to be men of great faith, saints. They have to love Christ. And so if, if they proclaim the gospel with a simplicity but with love and fidelity, that's what's going to reach into the depths of the, the hearts of the congregation. And so, you know, this goes with, for the reading of the scriptures itself, but also then the, uh, the preaching on the text afterwards. Like them, it is meant to nourish the spirit and flesh blood, and blood man, to work in him as power. To do this, it must be whole. This consideration takes us still deeper. The saving God who came to us was the eternal word. But that word did not come in a blaze of spiritual illumination or something suddenly appearing in a book. He was made flesh, flesh that could be seen heard, grasped with hands, as St. John so graphically insists in the opening lines of the first epistle. The same mystery continues in the living word of liturgical proclamation, and it is all important that the connection remain vital. So here again is the connection with the incarnation itself, that we are showing that we do not understand what God has done for us, in the incarnation, 
then if we are not opening ourselves then to receive that word in the way that it is meant to receive, if we strip it down and make it only the word on, on the page itself. But, you know, the, the church is a living body, you know, and the scriptures are put together by the church and are, but are, and are proclaimed by the church. And this is what makes it living and vital for the community. And again, when we, we strip, down, strip things down, we're going to, to destroy and shatter the faith of the, of the people. The word of God is meant to be heard, and hearing requires silence. This takes us back to everything that we have spoken about the last couple of months. To be sure that the point is clear, let us put it this way. How may proper hearing be prevented? I could say something to a man sitting out of earshot, for example. Then I should have to speak louder in order to establish the physical connection. Or I could speak loudly enough, but his attention is elsewhere. My remarks will go unheeded. Then I must appeal to him to listen. Perhaps he does listen, notes what I say, follows the line of thought, tries his best, yet fails to understand him. Something in him remains closed. He hears my reasons, follows them intellectually and psychologically. He would understand at once if, he, if they applied to someone else. In regard to himself, he fails to see the connection because his pride will not admit the truth. Perhaps a secret voice warns him that were he to admit it, he would have to change things in his life that he is unwilling to change. The more examples we consider, the more clearly we realize that hearing, too, exists on many levels, and we begin to suspect its importance when the speaker is God. Not for nothing did our Lord say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there is also something in this living uh, and direct proclamation of the word that works to break through our resistance to hearing the truth, that because of our sin, our fallen state, we are not often going to be open to hearing that, that truth, that there are going again to be psychological, intellectual, and spiritual impediments that have to be overcome. And that's what we're engaged in in our spiritual ascetical life, and that's what takes place during the Mass as well. We're seeking to lower our defenses in order to open ourselves up to the, the truth of God, in order to hear the word that he's speaking to us at that moment, often a word that is challenging and a word that is unsettling. You know, Cardinal Newman described the, the conscience that speaks to us about what well, rebukes us for doing wrong, instructs us to do right. He says, a stern and gloomy principle. We don't often want to hear it because it tells us what we're not doing, that we're not living in accord with the gospel. And so there can be a resistance that develops within us. We can uh, dull, desensitize the conscience through exposing ourselves to everything in the culture, everything that every other Christian is doing, and not, and not, by pray, not praying and not reading the scriptures to the point that we can no longer hear the truth that is spoken to us. It's, it is amazing at times, and I, I don't want to say this in a condescending way, because I, 
become a part of the group celebrating at the Mass. But when you're up in the pulpit and there is a proclamation, you know, either from one of Paul's writings or from the Gospel itself, it often doesn't elicit the kind of attention and response that you would expect from attentive listeners. That if we have, have really formed our minds and our hearts, you would think that our engagement would be such that when we would hear those words, something would re respond within us. He talks about uh, emotion being, uh, did you pick that up here? Where, where was that? If somebody could help me find that. Sorry. Halfway through the previous page. Yes. Where is it? Uh, only words formed by the human voice can have the delicacy and power necessary to stir the depths of emotion. Right. To stir the depths of emotion, the seat of the spirit, the full sensitiveness of the conscience. And so, you know, while we might not live out our faith life on the effective level, on the level of feelings, there is something in the proclamation of, the, of that word when it does penetrate, challenge us that stirs the senses, it stirs the conscience, and should evoke a response from us. But when we've dulled that conscience, or when we've stripped our hearing of the word down to such a way, we, we are, again, impeding something essential. And if that goes on long enough, it's going to be something that really has a, a, a bad effect upon the life of the faithful, to the point of shattering it. As, as Gordini says. I think that's why there is a le legitimate concern that, you know, that we, that many have been proclaiming for decades now about, uh, not about what has taken place in the liturgy. I think there's an understanding perhaps of one, that this is what the council should, should have done for us you know, lead us into a deeper understanding of the liturgy. But the catechesis did not follow, follow what we find is a stripping of what was beautiful, was most beautiful from the liturgy. And we are left with this kind of minimalist approach. It's almost sort of like it is a Protestantizing of the, the Catholic Mass. And when that happens, I think we, we lose something essential in terms of our, our experience of, of the real presence of Christ, both in the proclamation of the word and then our receiving of the word made flesh in, in, the, Holy, in the Holy Eucharist. And so, you know, I don't know if the answer is for us to go back to, you know, the extraordinary form. I think we would still have to do what Guardini is talking to us about here in each of the, the chapters that we've been looking, looking at. I mean, we could go to the extraordinary form and have the very same experience, not really be listening uh, in this active, active way. And so there, there is a formation of mind and heart that is important, and that has to go along with good liturgy. Both have to be tied together. If, if what we're seeking to practice in the spiritual and the ascetical life is not also reflected in the liturgical life, then again, we're going to be weakened uh, as a community. And I don't think the answer is simply to, you know, to throw 
certain things of the liturgy at people without educating them. Because uh, it wouldn't, it would bounce off anyways at this point. We've been formed more by the culture than, than anything else. But a recapturing of these things, I think, on s small levels becomes very important. Removing uh, the phones or removing the screens that have the music or the words projected upon them, removing the missiles, and explaining why we, we're doing that would be very important. Okay, where did I leave off here? Okay. To have ears to hear requires grace, for God's word can be heard only by him whose ears God has opened. How does this when how, he does this when he pleases, and the prayer for truth is directed at the divine pleasure? But it also requires something that we ourselves desire and are capable of, being inwardly present, listening from that vital core of our being, unfolding ourselves to that which comes from beyond to the sacred word. All this is possible only when we are inwardly still. And so ultimately it is God's grace that has to give us the capacity to hear that word but we can seek to prepare ourselves in the way that Guardini says here in order that we might be most receptive to that grace in our lives and we're uh, hearing that word might bear the greatest fruit for us. So uh, listening from the vital core of our being and being inwardly still. So that means, you know, what, what do we do practically about that in our day-to-day -day life? We have to create kind of stillness. We have to remove ourselves from the chattering of society and the chattering that goes on within ourselves. We can't be afraid of silence. We should love silence, cherish it, foster it, simplify things in our life that opens up the space for it. In particular, as we are preparing to celebrate the divine liturgy. Uh, if we don't do this, then I think our, our experience will remain exactly as it is. In stillness alone can we really hear. When we come in from the outside, our ears are filled with the racket of the city, the words of those who have accompanied us, the laboring and quarreling of our own thoughts, the disquiet of our hearts' wishes and worries, hurts and joys. How are we possibly to hear what God is saying? That we listen at all is something not everyone does. It is even better when we pay attention and make a real effort to understand what is being said. But all this is not yet that attentive stillness in which God's word can take root. This must be established before the service begins. If possible, in the silence on the way to the church, still better in a brief period of composure the evening before. So you know we have you know all these groups within the church. We have uh, multiplication of Bible studies, all of which are good things to deepen our understanding uh, of the faith, uh, to deepen our understanding of the scriptures. But it has to be more than that. Uh, insofar as our formation is uh, group-based and talk-based, it's it's not really going to be living out the faith fully. We have to be living in a constant state of repentance 
and conversion, a, a turning of ourselves toward God, an overcoming of the passions, avoiding of near occasions of sin, removing the, the clutter of, of noise from our lives, what Cardinal Seurat in his book uh, in the subtitle describes as the dictatorship of noise, that it uh, doesn't even have to be overtly sinful things. It can be that which is benign, but yet is distracting in life. And it doesn't even have to be noise in the way that we typically think of noise. It can be simply that we are constantly before or on the computer, and our, our minds are filled with one thing after another because we let curiosity get the best of us, and we move from site to site and article to article, and we spend hours engaged in that. And so how is it possible, then, for us to move from that into Mass and have that be a fruitful experience. We are going to be so scattered, so fragmented in our minds and our hearts that we are not going to be able to hear the Word of God. And so I think what Gardini is putting before us here is not simply uh, how, how we listen to the Word of God at Mass. I think he's speaking to us of conversion of life you know, wide-sweeping changes in the way that we approach our day-to-day -day living. That Christians should live in the world and think about things in a different way than others. And he brings it forward in a beautiful way, just in, in, in talking about the way that we listen to, to words being spoken, in particular the Divine Liturgy. But this should be true of our, our life as a whole, radically different, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, and having everything in our life that, that fosters minds and, our heart, and hearts that are capable of hearing the Word of God. And this is what we'll be able to uh, continue to follow along. The chapters that, that come are to come are exquisite. And then the next one we'll be looking at is composure, which will... Uh, which isn't just, you know, holding oneself nice and still. It's, it sort of has to do with what's going on internally for us at the deepest levels. How, how is it that we foster this kind of inner stillness and composure of mind and heart that we can do exactly what he's talking about in this chapter? Any thoughts or comments on the whole reading? Yes? We're still working on that stillness in, in our whole lives. I'm still confused as to why it's not a good thing to, to stay, to help, I don't know, for me to stay focused. It's good for me to, to read and to hear. Like the more of my senses that I engage, I feel like the better that I can retain and understand things. But that's not so. Well, I think, I think you would say it is good to read, but to read it beforehand. To have that time of preparation, to familiar, your, familiarize yourself with the readings so that you are able to listen more attentively when they are being proclaimed. But to read in that moment of the liturgy, when we enter into the sacred, is not to open ourselves up fully to, to hearing the word as God desires us to hear it and the particular word that he desires us to hear. That again, we are placing something between ourselves and that word proclaimed. Mediation there is taking place 
you know, if we have our head in the, in the book. Again, simply being focused on the words is going to take a bit of attention off of that, that listening with the full being. And that comes more through hearing than it comes through looking at, at the words on the page. So I think he would, he's not, as he said, he's not trying to say that reading is a bad thing. But he is saying that there's a certain context where it should not be done. And that would be liturgy and then things like storytelling and poetry, as we talked about. How do you get to the point where you trust what you like, I don't know, like you said, like you'll say, you'll give a whole homily and somebody will come up and say thank you for saying something you didn't say. Well, you know? I don't, I don't, I don't think we do. I think there is a kind of formation that we have to undergo in, in terms of the ordering of the passions, uh, overcoming the impediments that he talks about. You know, we can have certain psychological impediments, intellectual, we might not understand what we're are hearing, and spiritual. We might have really cut ourselves off from the, the life of the church and the spiritual tradition that we perhaps would need guidance and, and direction. And so we would go to confession frequently in order to be able to examine our life. We would read the great spiritual writers. We would have a, a spiritual director perhaps to help us in that. So I think you know when we are entering into the spiritual life, Wisdom tells us that we wouldn't trust ourselves and our thoughts. We, we would act in good faith, listen as fully as we can, but there is always a, a humility with which we have to approach the word, word of God or the study of the fathers and saying, okay, I might not be hearing what I need to hear, but there is, I can have a resistance to hearing the truth something was blocking me, and so I, or I might only hear a partial truth. And so m maybe we never get to that point where we trust ourselves fully, and we, we shouldn't. We're, you know, I think we're all capable of delusion. Yes? What, what is being heard in and through a heart that loves Christ is going to be deeper than what might come through study. You know, Philip Neri said, more is learned about scriptures on one's knees than from books. It's not that he didn't study or read commentaries, but 
he knew that it was that relationship of love that came through prayer, you know, that was made concrete through prayer that the, the deepest understanding of the scriptures were to be found. It's not going to be found through a commentary. So you're right. You know, there is something uh, that you know, love speaks more fully. And so when they had love incarnate before him, the apostles weren't, you know, running around writing things down. You know, the God who has taken on our flesh, love incarnate, you know, it's it's this person that is going to capture that reality and it's all in all of its fullness. And so they travel with him. You know, over the course of those years, they witness what he does, and they listen attentively. And even then, they 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 don't get it. Do you think Lexio Divina then is a, a way of trying to overcome the deficits in reading to mm -hmm. try to get a better grasp of what those living words are trying to convey? Right. Yeah, a prayerful, meditative reading of the scriptures that we're, where we wouldn't be reading for information uh, so much as we would be reading in a prayerful, attentive fashion, again, to, to hear the word that God desires to speak to us. And so that might even be a few words on a page of the gospel. It might be a paragraph, it might be a sentence, and then we would stop and pray about that. It's, it's a different kind of reading that arose out of monasticism. That it comes about due to the fact that they didn't have uh, printers. And so everything had to be written out by hand. And so books were precious. And so when they would receive a book, you know, they would memorize you know, huge portions of it. Uh, and do so in such a way that it would, you know, could grow and develop within their minds and their hearts. But it fostered this kind of practice of, of a prayerful reading so that the, the word could form the mind and the heart and they would, you know, remember it by heart. They wouldn't simply read quickly because they couldn't. And so technology in some ways has made us lose something. And often when they would be reading those books, they, again, they would be reading them out, out loud to be able to, to hear them. You know, either as a group, as a community, they would be read before or by themselves. And we are, again, I think what Guardini says, I think that we can be oblivious to this because it's become the norm. We pick up a book and we read through it quickly and sometimes we skim certain parts, the idea of a prayerful, reflective reading that stops after a few words, you know, to engage in this kind of reverie is, doesn't seem productive to us. It seems like a, a waste of time. And our whole educational system fosters it, too, even in seminary. The study of, of scriptures, you know, you have to read multiple books on it, but it would be better off re reading the scriptures, being you know being taught how to do lexio, and doing it every day, and then reading the fathers who engaged in that practice, what they 
thought about it. But yet, to answer your question, yes, I think it would be a, a way of helping to slow things down and help us listen in a different way during the liturgy than when that word is being proclaimed. Because it is fostering that sustained, attentive listening to the word of God. Any other thoughts or comments? Yes. I think it, it seems like uh, uh, a lot of um, what Gardini is speaking about in terms of with a specific point of um, hearing and not just reading um, a lot of the a lot of what perhaps we've been speaking about is um, revolves around the idea of intimacy that, that the mass and the liturgy are not it's not a lecture or something that we just go and do but it's rather a call to the most intimate um, the most intimate um, thing that a human being can engage in which is the union with God in the most intimate way possible on earth and that's and that um, we have a we don't we're afraid of intimacy in a lot of ways and so there are all kinds of ways that we can set up of um, making ourselves think that we're doing going to mass the way we're supposed to do and not entering into the intimacy whether it's engaging the text in an intellectual way instead of allowing it being vulnerable and allowing it to pierce my heart in the way that I need to hear it, not worrying about what it's saying to anyone else. Or, um, and I don't know, it seems like there's just a lot of ways that we can set up, like even having, like whether having a missile degree or having pews, so we sit and puts us in a posture of, that kind of fortifies the idea of I'm going to get something but not really enter in. And like the main thing is that I'm entering into something mysterious and that's kind of dangerous because it does call me to um, consider how I'm living my life and it's to be the point where the, a, a conversion on, just a, on a radical intimate level can take place. And it seems like all of these things are just ways that we can over time and it's almost, it's almost like could be expected that over the course of history people would set, would almost like without being honest with themselves if that's what they're doing, set up things like having pews or having a book to read or intellectualizing the word of God as a way of not really getting close, allowing God to get so close, which is exactly what the mass is. Right. And the same reason for avoiding silence. Yeah. Too. You know, if we fill our minds with noise or chatter, then we aren't really going to be listening on that deep level. We we really don't want that's why we fill our, our lives with busyness, but then also noise and distraction. To open ourselves to that kind of intimacy can be too frightening. I mean, even in Jesus' day, you know, when he was preaching about the, the Eucharist and, uh, you know, this is a hard saying and half of the disciples walk away at that point. At least they were listening, you know. They rejected it and said, no way, I'm... I'm um, I, this is too hard, but at least they understood exactly what he was saying. You know, if he's going to become that, then what does that mean for, for all of us? If he's going to allow himself to be broken and poured out and make himself food for others, what does that mean for disciples? And they, they wanted nothing to do with it. And now, you know, we receive the Eucharist 
without a second thought. Or hear the scriptures without sort of capturing what God is saying to us. This I think of mentioning, you know, I think is it Chrysostom or is it Francis who says that we do well to, in one point in our life to have a kind of fear and trembling about receiving the Holy Eucharist, that we fear to receive it, that if we never go, go through that, then we lack a kind of understanding of the awesomeness of the gift that we are being given there and what that means for us as human beings. If not, we take we take it for granted. And so, you know, I think to you know, as, as Father Paul says, you know, place up all these obstacles, you know, it prevents us from being confronted with those deeper truths. Yes. So, what do you do if you go to a church, a parish that doesn't foster that silence before? or during or even after Mass when you've got this idle chatter going on, how do you remain still in your soul, yet still, and somehow manage to block out all of that noise around you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's why, I think we have to see that Guardini is talking about the whole of life here. Everything that would foster this reality for us requires deep conversion, constant conversion, and repentance, stillness, and silence. And so our whole life then has to, again, we have to live from Eucharist to Eucharist, prepare, you know, embrace the grace as fully as we can, and then prepare ourselves to receive once again, move from this intimacy to intimacy. And uh, I think if we find ourselves in a parish, though, where that becomes an absolute possibility, impossibility, then I'm not going to tell somebody you know, to keep going to that uh, the same place where you can't make an act of thanksgiving after receiving Holy Communion. You know, we will often, you know, talk about com creating community, and we'll do it in all these banal ways. You know, inviting or uh, welcoming new people, the sign of peace. You know, everybody's chattering after Mass, and you know, we don't think about the the radical community communion that we have with each other in and through the Eucharist, and that we would be engaging and experience a greater communion with each other if we understood what we were celebrating at the altar. There, there can be a deep intimacy with people that you don't know in, the, in a chapel where everybody's focused on what's taking place at the altar and the reception of the communion. It can be beautiful. And that moment of deep prayer and everything becomes absolutely silent and focused upon the altar. You know, they, you know, and I think in a lot of parishes that can be rare, but when that happens, there's a profound sense of communion and, and community there. But I'll, I'm not going to tell a person, I say you nourish yourself where you can. And I think, you know, if that's not taking place in the parish, I think you talk to the the priest and you know about the struggle to do that and it's his he's the chief liturgist it's his responsibility to create an environment where this can take place and again I don't think we become combative and argumentative but we have you know that's part of our responsibility too for a parish that we would say 
I can't this I can't pray in this kind of setting. This is a, a distraction. And if one can't find that in a particular parish, then I think one would have to go where they're being nourished. Not everybody would agree with that. Not I understand that, but you know, I think we can't force people, you know, into situations where they feel that they're being impoverished. Yes. In the beginning, you said that when you <clears throat> became a Catholic, you you were used to the just the, the, the service being focused on the minister's homily mm-hmm. and sermon and and the reading, mm-hmm. uh, and you were impressed with the rapt attention mm-hmm. of the, the Catholic mass on the one on the, the liturgical prayer. Um, it seems to me that you, you left one thing out from Protestantism, and that would be the music. And it seems like since Vatican II, the Catholic Church has incorporated Protestant music types into the, the liturgy where you can't hear the prayers anymore. Yeah. Sometimes they have better music than we do. Because they have paid choirs, <laughs> not somebody playing on an electric keyboard. I mean, they. Uh, we uh, we were members of a Presbyterian church in Westmont in Johnstown, and they had somebody formally sing on Broadway, and it was a full paid choir, and it was magnificent. But there was this sense that it always it cut off after the sermon, and that the. Even the the preacher, who was very good, you could see that he sort of held back a little bit, you know, from, you know, in what he was saying, so as not to offend. But there was a truncation. The the liturgy was truncated there. It didn't then lead to the receiving of the word made flesh in, in the Eucharist. Any other thoughts? Well, we could close there with then the, the prayer to St. Philip, and then again there are coffee, there's coffee and desserts uh, for, for afterwards. So the prayer to St. Philip, and then we'll sing the final hymn. Please stand. And let us pray together. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, From thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly, to thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients, to thee we appeal as our leader, rule thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil, to thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightening, accessible, it from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains I soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to both great and small, in all life thou livest, the true life of